1: from the nation magazine this is start making sense i'm john wiener later today we'll talk about the big tv event of the month maybe of the year the underground railroad that 10-part series on amazon prime video that's a historical drama that's being called The Most Ambitious Take on American Slavery Since Roots, which was on TV almost 40 years ago. Eric Foner will comment. He wrote the book on the hidden history of the Underground Railroad. It's called Gateway to Freedom. First up, we need to talk about Israel and the Palestinians. And for that, we turn to Sari Makdisi. He's Professor of English and Comparative Literature at UCLA. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, the LRB, and, of course, The Nation. He's the author of many books, including Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine, and the Culture of Denial. It's forthcoming from the University of California Press. Sari Makdisi, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, almost all the news from the Mideast this week is about Gaza, but your piece at the nation.com reports on what Benjamin Netanyahu recently referred to as the second front what is the second front
2: the second front is in his parlance anyway is the he's referring to the Palestinian citizens of the state so these are second class citizens second class Palestinian citizens of of the state of Israel I mean, they have Israeli passports and so on, but they have they're systematically discriminated against legally in terms of access to jobs and land and housing and so on and so forth. And for a long time, they've been, you know, off and on, sort of, you know, more or less quiet and then more or less active. And now they're they're in a period where they're entering a phase of activity. And so, the most remarkable about thing about what's been happening recently is the people on the in, so we call them the people on the inside, meaning the people who are citizens of the state. They're about twenty percent of the population of the state. So they they rose up initially in solidarity with the families in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, who are about to be uh, expelled from their homes, and also in response to the Israeli assault on the mosques of Jerusalem as well. And so the most amazing thing about what's happening now is this this sort of grassroots Palestinian mobilization that connects the citizens of the state with those living either in Gaza or in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem in a way that we haven't really seen not at least in this to to this extent in in previous um uh, previous intifadas should we say and that's 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 astonishing to me because it's it's showing grassroots mobilization popular mobilization and then it's like there's a kind of reciprocity too so for example the people in Haifa and Jaffa went up the hill to Jerusalem when when the Aqsa Mosque was under siege by the Israelis, they were blocked from getting to the mosque. In fact, they were blocked from getting to Jerusalem at all by Israeli roadblocks. They abandoned their cars and walked, which is extraordinary. And then when we saw uh, Jewish supremacists uh, attacking Palestinian houses and, and apartments and shops and so forth in those coastal cities, people from Jerusalem came down to the cause of their, you know, their brethren in, on the coast. So there's an amazing sense of uh, commonality among Palestinians now, which which of course has always been there, but it has not always been expressed as forcefully, as powerfully as it is these days. And that's one of the transformative things that we're witnessing right now.
1: And another aspect of this second front is attacks on what Israel calls the Arab citizens of Israel in their communities by right-wing Israeli Jewish mobs.
2: Yes. Yeah. B- smashing their storefronts and setting up sort of random checkpoints and saying, you know, to people passing by, are you Jewish? Are you Muslim? Well, who are you, etc. And then if the if the if the answer is incorrect, or if they surmise the answer to be incorrect, they drag the person out of the car and beat him savagely. But There's lots of things like that. Breaking into people's houses. There's some terrifying videos of you know Palestinians. Palestinian citizens of the state, mind you, being barricading themselves into their homes because these guys are trying to break down the doors and get in—it's absolutely terrifying. And and more to the point, what we see is Israeli state security, police, or border guards, or whatever, sometimes just watching, you know, quietly and not intervening to help these people, but also sometimes participating actively in these sort of racial uh, rampages. Part of what you're seeing is this, and I talk about it in my piece in the Nation, is this is this sense of what had been a very kind of profoundly held together sort of state project. Now it's sort of like it's coming apart at the seams. I mean, obviously it's not gonna fall apart tomorrow, but there's a kind of a certain degree of unraveling that we're not really used to seeing, and but we're seeing it. And so this duality of the front in Gaza on the one hand, which is subject to this relentless and indiscriminate bombardment of a civilian population, civilian shelterless population, not just shelterless, but they, there's nowhere, like normally, if you're being bombed, you can at least run, if nothing else, you can at least flee somewhere else. In Gaza, it's a prison, you can't get out. There's nowhere to flee to, and you can't hide. So it's this terrifying thing. On the other hand, on the in these cities, on the inside, this sense of racial retribution or racial vengeance, and it's, it's hideous. But the reason why it's hideous is because that is in the nature of an ethnic, of any ethnic state, not just this ethnic state, this isn't the nature of ethnic states, this is what they're about. They're about ethnic separation and ethnic privilege and so forth. It's not the first time in the history of the world we see such a state, but we see it now more nakedly than we normally see it.
1: You've reminded us that the current crisis did not begin with Hamas sending rockets into Israel. I just want to spend a minute on where the current crisis began in East Jerusalem.
2: In Sheikh Jarrah, a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem, what what happens in places like Sheikh Jarrah or elsewhere in East Jerusalem on a kind of almost minuscule scale you know like literally house by house flat by flat there's a consistent attempt by particularly by right-wing Zionist organizations to take the houses or the shops or the stores or whatever or the parking spaces or whatever of Palestinians and to kind of turn them into in effect especially in a densely pop you know densely populated area like Sheikh Jarrah to create like a mini Jewish settlement in the middle of a very densely populated Palestinian area. And so, what these settler organizations use, they fall back on the mechanisms of the Israeli legal system, which, of course, in violation of international laws, I say legal system, you know, it understood that's a, qual- a term to be qualified. And the legal system has these mechanisms in it that enable somebody who's Jewish to go back. If they go back and they do their research properly and they find out that at some point, somebody at some time in history, somebody Jewish owned the particular place. They can use that mechanism to get the Palestinian family out of out of the home that they've been living in for decades. Of course, the reverse doesn't hold true. There is no mechanism for a Palestinian citizen or or non-citizen to reclaim Palestinian property that's been expropriated by the state or its auxiliaries and, like,
1: and and let me just inject i i understand from my very brief study of what americans call Sheikh Jarrah that this has been an arab town for many centuries after the 1948 war it was governed by jordan and then in 1967 it was conquered by israel and unlike the rest of the west bank it was not just occupied but annexed to the state of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. But since then, it has largely remained a Palestinian neighborhood.
2: Yeah, exactly. It still is. It's a totally Palestinian neighborhood. So when the Israelis captured the West Bank and East Jerusalem in 67, what they did is they they wanted to expand the territorial borders of of, of East Jerusalem. So they annexed the land of about 28 Palestinian villages that had been just West Bank villages outside of Jerusalem. They annexed that land and then they said, this is all now, we're going to redefine it. We're going to redraw the lines and call this Jerusalem. We call it East Jerusalem. They consider it the whole thing one space. And so that's what this is. Yeah. So it's an, so, from a Palestinian perspective, it's a continuation of the Nakba of 1948, right? The Nakba was seven or 800,000 people kind of at once. This is a house here, a neighborhood there, an individual householder, individual apartment, individual shop. It's very, very small scale, drip, 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 drip. But it's the same thing. It's an extension of the same thing. It's ethnic cleansing on a small, slow scale. But that is what it is, and that is what set the stage for the current for the current for the current crisis.
1: And you write in the Nation that the situation that started in the last month around Sheikh Jarrah, you write of that it no longer makes any sense to use the 1948 and 1967 armistice lines as a way of distinguishing the territory often referred to as Israel from that referred to as the occupied territories. Please explain.
2: Yeah, because what we see is the same racial logic. It's happening on both sides of, the, of, this, of these more or less arbitrary lines, the, the 1949-67 armistice lines. Just to say what those lines are, when the fighting stopped after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, in 1948, the Israelis made agreements with the various Arab states. In this case, Jordan is the one that matters. And they just drew a line, basically it's a ceasefire line. And that's kind of where, wherever the armies were at that point when the fighting stopped, that's everybody kept what was on the other side of the line. Israel is recognized internationally within those those lines, but it has never declared its own borders. It refuses to declare its own borders. It's very ambiguous as to what it considers to be its territory. Many maps of the state include the West Bank and Gaza and so as part of what it claims to be its, its territory or the Golan Golanites. Yeah, what we're seeing is both, so people have often used the term apartheid, like for example, President Carter famously used it in his book in 2006, he ta- but he was very, very clear in his book to say we could talk about apartheid, but it's strictly in the occupied territories. He says Israel within its pre-67 borders is not an apartheid state. I would disagree with that. I think it it is an apartheid. It always has been an apartheid state. But the point is that there used to be a distinction between apartheid in the occupied territories and apartheid in the pre-67 state. And I think that that's kind of falling by the wayside. So what we see is one overarching regime of apartheid that encompasses both sides of the 49-67 borders, and that, of course, it works in different ways. They don't do large-scale bombing in Haifa or Yafa; they do in Gaza, right? They don't they don't storm mosques with army troops in Yafa. They use border guards or police or whatever. It's, it's, the, the modalities are a bit different, but the overarching logic is is the same logic, and that that sense of there being an Israeli apartheid system that operates on both sides of the lines. Was validated this year by a B’Tselem report that I'm sure you, you've read or know about, and then by Human Rights Watch just last month, and of course in 2017 by UNESCO, an agency of the United Nations, that published a very detailed report on Israel's apartheid system that was published, but written by two huge scholar, American scholars of international law, Virginia Tilley and our colleague from UC, Richard Falk. Which which and part of what part of the point all those reports make is that the same system of apartheid operates, it obtains both inside pre-67 Israel and in the occupied territories. And indeed the, the UN report makes the added point that those Palestinians who are the, the largest single group of Palestinians, the ones in exile or in refugee camps, they they're also part of the picture here. They're not allowed to go home because of Israel's system of apartheid. So it's actually not just in the in the territory of the state and its occupied territories, but you know, on a, on a kind of almost global dimension as well. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're seeing now. That's what people are witnessing right now is this kind of unraveling of distinctions, qualitative distinctions between inside and outside. Now it's the distinctions are quantitative more than qualitative in some sense.
1: Many of my friends have been saying for a long time that the problem is that Israel has had a right-wing government and that the left-wing parties have not been strong enough for the last several decades to win power i know you disagree with that you wrote in the nation that the left wing governments and parties have enabled the occupation and colonization of the remnants of what had been palestine in 1948
2: yeah i mean there's a few things one one is that even even without 1967 the state itself i mean among its own citizens it differentiates how it how it as a state identifies that is literally what ID cards it gives its own citizens and how it registers in the the state's population registry. So for example, Jewish citizens are acknowledged to have what the state calls Jewish nationality. Palestinian citizens of the state are not, first of all, for a long time, they weren't given any kind of nationality at all. More recently, they've been accredited as having what what the state calls Arab nationality, or sometimes they say Christian and Muslim in the same line. So it differentiates its own citizens according to what their essentially what the religion is what it comes is what it boils down to and it therefore grants or withholds rights on the basis of what their national what it accords them in terms of national identity so in other words in that sense there there has been racism from left-wing governments and right-wing governments inside the state from the get-go that is what the state is about the 1967 you know conquest of the west bank and east jerusalem and gaza continued that of course it, it with the settlements the same sort of logic of separation that started unfolding outside the the pre-67 borders of the state. And uh and so what we what we see as a result is this is this uh proliferation of separation according to racial identity. And uh that was promulgated by left-wing governments just as much as right-wing governments. For example, the, when the people they they look at Netanyahu, who's obviously, you know, he's a man of of criminal dispositions and up to his eyes in and, and corruption and malfeasance of all sorts, not just politically, but kind of financially and otherwise. And, uh, you know, they, they hearken back to the days of the so-called left-wing labor governments of Shimon Peres or Yitzhak Rabin, you know, who, and it's true that they were involved in something called the peace process, but at the same time as they were, as they were talking about peace, they were very busily settling, colonizing the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which of course makes peace impossible to achieve. So, there the current in a way it's like substantively very little has actually changed in israeli policies materially it's pretty much the same thing from that from from day one what's changed is the packaging more than more than the substance and this packaging right now is obnoxious and rude and you know barefaced and it's sort of it doesn't it doesn't go around with the layers of denial and equivocation and prevarication and so forth that previous governments, or it doesn't even pretend to play the game of two-state solution, for example, whereas previous governments, the so-called left or labor governments did. And so Netanyahu is this kind of, you know, he's a kind of brutal, nakedly brutal uh, operative as opposed to those people like Perez and and Rabin who at at least they would use the vocabulary of peace, even if it was totally disingenuous, which I think it was, at least they sounded, and so the liberals here, for example, could say, oh, look, there's a two-state solution, and oh, if only there were a Palestinian partner for peace and so on and so forth, which now in netanyahu they don't, they're not able to identify with them in the same way that they were with people like Rabin and Perez. And so that's, that's part of what the difference is about. It's packaging, honestly.
1: And I want to talk briefly about American politics, and that means it's time for your Minnesota Moment news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. St. Paul's representative in Congress is Betty McCollum, and she has introduced the historic bill in the House, H.R. 2590, the Palestinian Children and Families Act, which, quote, insists on the rights to safety, dignity, and freedom for the Palestinian people the freedom to thrive, free from child detention, home demolitions, continual Israeli annexation, and land theft. And the bill says, quote, U.S. assistance intended for Israel's security must never be used to violate the human rights of Palestinian children, demolish the homes of Palestinian families, or permanently annex Palestinian lands, quote, quote. She she introduced this a couple of years ago. She reintroduced this on April 15th, weeks before the current crisis in Gaza. It's been endorsed by dozens of organizations and has uh, more than a dozen original co-sponsors in the House. Uh, I wonder if you have any comment on, on uh, Betty McCollum's proposal of the Palestinian Children and Families Act in the House.
2: Oh, I think it's a commendable thing that she's been trying to do. And and you know, I applaud her for doing it. There's no question. She's and she's careful and calculated in the way in which she's she's crafting language. It's all about children. And of course, who could object? I mean, I guess some people do object. Some people in theory, do. nobody should be able to object to, de- to demolishing children's houses and family houses and killing children. Of course, the Israelis do it all the time anyway. But so that's which is great. And I, you know, I, I wish her every success in in being able to get it through the house and what, what's interesting, though, is that it's not just her any longer. We see uh, other other figures, obviously, in the Democratic Party, particularly in the House, I think less so in the Senate. I think there's, there's Bernie in the Senate to a certain extent, but otherwise, a lot of this stuff, is, the energy happens to be in the House these days more than in the Senate. And what we're seeing is a kind of split between, I think it's partly younger, it's partly that they're younger, I, I, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with age, but it's sort of the more progressive I don't want to necessarily say, get carried away and say left-wing side of the Democratic Party, but the more progressive wing, people like AOC and Rashida Tlaib and, and people like that. And there's some other new representatives as well who have come on, who are, you know, attaching themselves to this movement, as opposed to the kind of the more established sort of senior hierarchy of the party, people like Pelosi and and Joe Biden and and so forth, who seem to be trapped in a kind of 1980s time warp, as far as I can tell. And so but but the point is we're seeing not just Representative McCollum's bill, but also a discussion that happened last week uh, in, in in the in the in the halls of the US Congress where people were people like AOC and others were openly talking about apartheid and so forth, which is that's as far as I know, that's unprecedented in the US House of Representatives. And it speaks to a kind of shift that's we're that's happening now. It's happening, that's the point. We're, we're no longer where we were 15 or 20 or even 10 years ago. And, you know, I talked about this also in other contexts that uh, John Oliver, for example, I don't know if you saw that skit of his, but that John Oliver, I mean, this is a comedy show, right? That he can spend, the guy, you know, he has a certain sort of political earnestness in it, not just on this issue, on other issues as well, but that he can spend 20 minutes or whatever talking about what's happening. Or Trevor Noah, I think it was a few days ago, that Paris Hilton, of all people, can come out and, and condemn what's happening in Gaza. I mean, th- these individually, these are small, but when you put them all together, with what's been happening in the House of Representatives, you get a sense of this is, something has changed. We're not in the 1980s. I think Biden has no idea of the change that's taking place. I think Nancy Pelosi denies it, but it's there's something afoot. And I think what we're seeing partly is increasingly support for Israel in this country, in the US, is shifting from what it had been for decades in the 60s and 70s and so on, as a kind of left-wing or progressive agenda, part of the left-wing or progressive agenda. And it's becoming much more part of a right-wing xenophobic agenda connected to Islamophobia and militarism and harsh policing of black and brown communities in the U.S., which, of course, as you know, the Israelis are themselves connected to because they train our police forces, among some of them anyway, among other things, including yours, by the way, I don't know about St. Paul, but Minneapolis. Minneapolis, yes. That's the shift that we see taking place right now. And so I think that's remarkable. And I think... The idea that, you know, the U.S. is never going to shift, I think is inc- I think that's a mistake. I think the U.S. is shifting and it'll continue to shift. I think that will open up new possibilities uh, for bringing peace and justice to this question once and for all in the years to come.
1: New possibilities. You can read Sari Makdisi at thenation.com. Sari, thank you for talking with us
2: today. My pleasure, Tom. My pleasure. Absolutely.
1: TV event of the month, maybe of the year, is The Underground Railroad, a 10-part series on Amazon Prime Video. For those who haven't heard about it, it's a historical drama. It's being called the most ambitious take on American slavery since Roots. Roots was on TV in 1977, more than 40 years ago. For comment, we turn to Eric Foner. He wrote the book on the hidden history of the Underground Railroad. It's called Gateway to Freedom published in 2015, we talked about it here. Eric, of course, taught American history at Columbia for a long time. His work on the history of reconstruction and the Civil War era has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, Barry Jenkins, the filmmaker here, told the New York Times that the big question he faced at the outset was, do we really need more images of black people getting brutalized? He said there was a story he needed to tell, quoting here, not about the physical violence of slavery, but something subtler about the psychic and emotional scourge and the spiritual strength required for any individual to have come out alive. He also met with a focus group of black people in Atlanta who had read the Colson Whitehead book, which is the basis for the TV series. Their advice was, quote, you have to show everything. It needs to be hard. It needs to be brutal. How brutal is it?
0: It's pretty brutal. Uh, There are certainly many scenes with violence of one kind or another directed against uh, black people, both slave and free particularly the first uh, of the 10 episodes and the last of the 10 episodes have pretty big uh, warning or uh, alerts at the beginning that this that these uh, episodes dem- show uh, graphic images of violence and that uh, viewers should be forewarned, whippings, uh, sexual assaults, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's not easy to take. And It's a kind of artistic decision and maybe a political decision how much you want to uh, emphasize the violence and brutality of slavery. That's real. I mean, that's the way slavery was. It was a system of violence. And so uh, many people feel well to sugarcoat that or to sort of have it uh, visible indirectly doesn't quite do justice to the story. On the other hand, it can kind of shock and drive away potential viewers, which would not be what the directors uh, wish to happen. Now, you know, this is not the first one. 12 Years a Slave, the a film of a few years ago, uh, had some pretty violent uh, scenes of whippings, et cetera. So this is not the first time we have, uh, we have seen that. I thought it was occasionally gratuitous, but generally speaking, this is what slavery was. Remember, uh, Lincoln, in the Second Inaugural Address, uh, spoke about 250 years of the blood drawn by the lash. That was in his Second Inaugural Address. That's what you do see here on a number of occasions. But that's not all it is. It's 10 hours of film, of television. There's plenty more than just the scenes of violence.
1: pinnacle, or the nadir maybe, of, of the violence portrayed here is when one escaped Slave is flayed and burned to death on the lawn while the owner and his guests enjoy a a banquet and dancing. Uh, in the New York Times, their wonderful TV critic James Panewazik asked, "Who needs to see this? Who can bear to?" I wonder if you had the same reaction.
0: Well, that was a pretty uh, difficult to take scene. One thing I'll say about Colson Whitehead, who wrote the novel, as you mentioned that this is based on, uh, he knows african-american history very well Uh, he's not a professional historian he's a novelist but you know just about everything in this film in the book in the film happened in some place or another it didn't happen in quite the same way that uh, it's in the book it didn't happen in the chronological order that whitehead has invented that's why that's because he's a novelist he's not uh, tied down to the very specifics of of history yeah, that was a pretty difficult uh, scene to watch. But, you know, there are plenty of examples after the Civil War and into the 20th century of lynchings in the South in which victims were burned alive. Maybe not at a big party, but certainly often with large numbers of white spectators kind of cheering on the murderers. So, um, you know, this is part of American history, what he's showing you there.
1: The TV series follows the basic conceit of the Colson Whitehead novel that the Underground Railroad is a real train, a kind of a subway that runs underneath the ground. Colson Whitehead explained when his novel uh, came out that this was an idea he had as a kid when he first heard about the Underground Railroad. And the central figure, the the slave Cora, who is escaping on the Underground Railroad, is pursued by the slave catcher, Ridgway. People like Ridgway did have law and order on their side and not just the law in slave states, this was federal law. Tell us how that worked.
0: Well, in 1850, the uh, federal government enacted the uh, Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which made it a federal crime to uh, assist runaway slaves and made it a federal responsibility, not just of the states, to uh, capture and apprehend and uh, re- retrieve uh, runaway slaves. It led to all sorts of confrontations in the North. It led to violent rescues of fugitives. It didn't solve the problem, obviously. It, it further exacerbated sectional uh, tensions. Uh, but I want to make the point which uh, that calling the book and the film The Underground Railroad is a bit of a misnomer. It's not really about that. Yes, this kind of interesting little uh, device of having a real train running underground and Cora uh, escaping from one place to another on it from uh, time to time. Uh, It's in there, but this is not about the Underground Railroad. It's more about freedom than about slavery. It's about what Cora and other uh, Blacks encounter in different parts of the United States once they are on the run and uh, escaping from slavery. It's much more about what happens after slavery, actually.
1: As you say, the train makes various stops where Cora has various adventures that form the episodes of the 10-part series. In the North Carolina of the Underground Railroad, it's an all-white state that has banned slavery, but it's also banned Black residents. Is there any historical basis for that?
0: Absolutely. Yes. As somebody says in the film, uh, you know, North Carolina has abolished slavery and has also abolished Negroes, at least from its own borders. Uh, Yes, the notion of Negro exclusion was uh, widely shared among many white people before the Civil War. First of all, there was the colonization movement which was devoted to getting all the black population out of the United States to Africa, where they set up Liberia or to Central America or Haiti. Uh, Many leading political figures were uh, members of the American Colonization Society. There were also states, including Illinois, where Lincoln of course was from, Indiana, uh, Oregon, uh, which enacted laws or constitutional provisions saying that only white people can migrate to this state, that black people, can't, they're excluded. So, you know, yes, Whitehead takes these things further than the reality, but that's what a novelist does. If black people are found in North Carolina in this story, they are killed right off. They're not just uh, sent out of the state. Uh, There's a whole uh, road uh, lined by the bodies of lynched black people that is seen briefly and discussed. Uh, This is the penalty if you're black and you're found in North Carolina. In other words, when I said before, this is about freedom, that is one extreme version of black freedom where they're just expelled altogether. Slavery has ended, but, uh, you know, not to the benefit of African Americans. However, before North Carolina in this story, Cora alights in South Carolina, the, now to us, South Carolina is the cockpit of secessionism. But here, South Carolina has abolished slavery. It's still in existence in Georgia where uh, Cora escapes from, but she finds in South Carolina, apparently a kind of an interracial, uh, harmonious society where black people free and former slave are walking the streets well-dressed, there are whites assisting them, there are schools for black people. She says this seems like uh, a paradise compared to slavery, but very slowly, she begins to discover that there's this underside, which again is based on history. There's the underside of eugenics, of, a, of a, an attempt to kind of limit black uh, re- uh, reproduction to make sure only the fittest are able to uh, have children. Uh, medical experiments on blacks. One person talks about what they call the bad blood. Well, that comes right out of the Tuskegee experiment of the 1930s, 40s. Uh, So even just below the surface of apparent racial harmony is this a different kind of effort to subjugate the black community. Not just not throwing them all out like North Carolina, uh, but sort of uh, in a eugenic way, kind of managing their uh, most intimate areas of their life.
1: So, yeah, let me ask you about the Indiana episode. This is towards the end of the series where cora finds a farm that's owned by a free black man named valentine which has a thriving black community there who peacefully live alongside white settlers but eventually they are attacked by a white mob which burned the farm to the ground and murder black residents does that have any basis in american history
0: well this is a kind of a a, a utopian commune you might say valentine farm but of all black people Uh, and uh, owned, the the local people in a nearby town kind of recognize that they own the land, the the black people and they're farming and producing wine and everything seems to be again, fairly harmonious. Uh, But um, then the town itself, the farm faces this question, should they harbor fugitive slaves violating the federal law? and uh, they have a debate about this and in the end the the local whites who have been actually supportive of them turn around and say no we don't want people here who are helping fugitive slaves and as you say they assault this uh, the 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 farm they kill people Uh, although blacks fight back in this this is not just uh, a massacre of innocent or of helpless people blacks get guns and start shooting at the white people too uh, are there historical uh, parallels or uh, antecedents for this? Yes, of course. I mean, the Tulsa race massacre, w- whose anniversary is coming up next month. Uh, other examples of white mobs burning down uh, successful black communities. Uh, yes, unfortunately that has happened. Wilmington, Delaware, uh, no, sorry, Wilmington, North Carolina. Now the one thing about the Indiana episode, which I think is, very, is really the pivot of the entire 10 hours is a debate among all the uh, residents that takes place about, should they help fugitive slaves or not? And there's the, and in a way, this is like the Booker T. Washington, W. B. Du Bois debate brought up to date. There are those like Washington who say, look, the only way we can get ahead is through economic advancement. We have to cooperate with white people. If whites don't want fugitive slaves here, there's nothing we can do about it. The other side, Mr. Valentine himself says, look, our job is to help as many black people as we possibly can. We have built something here almost against impossible odds, but we can't close ourselves off from the rest of African Americans and deny that they deserve their equal rights also. So it's it's not a debate that one side wins or loses. This is a debate that has gone on through black history for hundreds of years. And I think Whitehead puts that right in the middle there in order to highlight that there is no one black position which everybody uh, adheres to on tele on tv it's very vividly uh, portrayed
1: a couple final questions about the size and scope of the real underground railroad this part of the story here is that there's a network of abolitionists many of whom are white some of whom are black you have studied this question, especially focusing on New York City. How big was the network of white people for the Underground Railroad in a place like New York City, which was a big goal yeah. of freed slaves? Well, it was slaves. Old,
0: a temporary goal. Temporary Basically, goal. You had to get up to Canada to really yeah. be free, but New York was a major point on that journey the Underground Railroad is often exaggerated. I mean, that is say, there weren't thousands of agents helping the Underground Railroad. I I said in my book in New York City, there may have been a couple of dozen people who were actively engaged in helping fugitive slaves. It wasn't a gigantic operation, but if you had these networks scattered around the North, and in some places a lot more than that, like uh, Syracuse, New York, a center of abolitionism, uh, they could accomplish some pretty uh, significant things, but we should not think that every, you know, every town was full of underground railroad agents. And uh, it, but it it was an interracial uh, organization. One of the things uh, very impressive about it, uh, it was black and white people cooperating for a common uh, noble purpose. Uh, And I think we can learn something from that, no matter how big it was or wasn't uh, for today is rather fraught uh, race
1: relations. Your book concludes that this shows how a small number of people can accomplish great things despite massive obstacles.
2: Does
1: I think, think we
0: should be inspired by them. To me, it's about much more than the Underground Railroad. It's about the history of Black people in America. It reminds me, in some ways, of the novels of Toni Morrison, which is, are grounded in history, but history reshaped by the imagination of the novelist but nonetheless uh, offering really deep insights into the history of the united states
1: so there were four million slaves in the united states in 1860. the number who escaped to freedom via the underground railroad was pretty small historians have recently been trying to figure this out what is your conclusion about how many slaves actually escaped on the underground railroad
0: You know, this is a guesswork. Uh, First of all, a lot of it was done in secret. uh, So, you know, they're not publicizing them. My estimate, guesstimate, whatever, was about a thousand a year got out. I'm not talking about people who try to escape and then were recaptured. A thousand a year. All right, that's 30,000 in the 30 years before the Civil War. That's pretty impressive. 30,000 people gaining freedom. However, as you said, there were four million slaves. So 30,000 or a thousand a year is not destroying the system, it's not undermining the system. Most of those who escaped actually came from Maryland, Delaware, the really upper south states. Obviously, it was a lot easier to get into Pennsylvania from Maryland, uh, a free state then from Alabama, let us say. Uh, but the key is that the Underground Railroad did two big things. One, the very fact that slaves were escaping made a lie out of the southern ideology that they were all happy and well treated and you know the fact that slaves were escaping was itself a condemnation of slavery and second of all the actions of these fugitives put the question of slavery on the national agenda in a powerful new way and further exacerbated the split between north and south and contributed very significantly to the coming of the Civil War. So it had big ramifications, no matter how many people
1: actually were able to escape. So we've talked here mostly about the real history. What is your uh, conclusions about the Amazon Prime 10-hour show?
0: Well, uh, 10 hours uh, was a bit much, perhaps. Uh, I did watch it all in the last few days. Uh, It's brilliantly done. I mean, uh, just cinematically, the you know, the, the photography, even down to the sound, it's always in the background, these, the, the, the sound of the rural South, the crickets, the horses neighing, the sounds of a bell ringing. You know, you're really in the world that he's creating. And, um, you know, visually, it's, it's really a, a feast for the eyes and uh, beautifully, uh, beautifully filmed. You know, I think it's very impressive. I, I was, uh, you know, there. there is some pretty intense violence. And if you don't like that, you may uh, find it difficult to watch. But overall, uh, I think it's a very, very successful transition from a very good novel to the screen. I recommend that people watch it, not straight through, not, not binging on it, but it's well worth spending the time to see.
1: Eric Foner. His book on the hidden history of the Underground Railroad is called Gateway to Freedom. Barry Jenkins' 10-part TV series, The Underground Railroad, based on the novel by Colson Whitehead, is on Amazon Prime right now, all 10 episodes. Eric, thanks for watching all 10 hours, and thanks for talking with us today.
0: Uh, Happy to be here with you, John.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer, Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor, D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation, Katrina Den is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.